Welcome to The Property Perspective, a podcast by Knight Frank Australia. We'll share expert analysis from industry leaders, focus on key trends and forecasts, and bring you the latest topics shaping Australia's property market. Hi, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Janine Cranston, Head of ESG at Knight Frank, and I'm delighted to have with us here today, Aleta Boshoff. Um, Aleta is an advisory partner and national leader of both IFRS and corporate reporting and ESG and sustainability at BDO Australia. And we're here to make extraordinary the conversation around mandatory ESG reporting and what investors need to know to prepare for that, given that reporting, mandatory reporting, is heading towards us like a freight train. Welcome, Aleta. Hello, Janine. It's wonderful to be here. I think we just get straight into it. So let's start with the big one. What is sustainability reporting? Janine, that's a good question. And a lot of people talk about sustainability reporting and do not understand that there are two key parts. The one part would be voluntary sustainability reporting in a separate sustainability report, which is often a lot of storytelling around what do the organization do for the environment, for people, uh, for the planet, and, uh, and around governance. So that is an amazing document often that provides a lot of detail around employee, employee engagement, community engagement, etc. So they're the ones we're used to seeing. It's the one we used to see. And, and a number of entities have done great work in that space and should be complimented on that. However, at the moment when we talk about sustainability reporting, it is about three things. Mandatory sustainability reporting, which is included in an organization's annual report, so together with the audited financial statements. And the third thing is often there's some level of assurance required because how can you include this important information with no assurance next to financial statements that are subject to audit. It, it doesn't look right. It doesn't add the right level of credibility. So really the focus at the moment is on this mandatory reporting in a financial report or an annual report. This is coming towards us, as I mentioned, like a freight train, and it's a real eye-opener for a, a whole series of our clients who have been doing fabulous work in the non-mandatory reporting what are the requirements being implemented in Australia? Can you specify those for us? So the International Sustainability Standards Board, which is a sibling organisation to the International Accounting Standards Board. So the International Sustainability Standards Board on the 26th of June this year, so not that long ago, issued their first two standards, which is IFRS S1, which is general requirements around sustainability reporting, and I4S S2, which is the first very specific standard focused on climate-related disclosures. So for the very first time, do we have a generally accepted standard globally for climate-related disclosures, I4S S2, and we have a generally accepted standard around general um, disclosures. I think what's important to note is this ISSB is trying to do for sustainability reporting what the ISSB or the IASB has done for accounting standards and financial reporting. 
And that means harmonizing, bringing together a lot of different frameworks to have only one framework globally. It sounds like a lot of stakeholders in there. How does that play out? There's a lot of stakeholders in there. And I think the good news is just last month, IOSCO, which is all the regulators across the world, have endorsed the standards issued by the ISSB. So they are staying in the US, in Europe, in Australia. All these regulators are getting behind these standards. And, and that's a big step. That's a big step. When our regulators get behind this one set of standards, companies will follow. Great. So in Australia, it, sort of the 27th of June, as I recall, was the big day for Australia. And it's coming fast, isn't it? Give some key dates. Yes, so you're right. On the 26th of June, we got the new standards issued globally. But then the next day, Australian government, Treasury, issued a second consultation paper where they said when these standards would become mandatory in Australia. Because we can have standards globally, but unless we make it mandatory in our jurisdiction in Australia, nothing will happen. So the 26th of June was a big date. Um, and what Treasury has said... Um, and it, it was a big change, actually. Um, initially, in December last year, they said all of these standards will apply to listed entities only. On the 27th of June, they said all entities, and we'll start with the large ones, and then we'll move through, through all the entities. Um, and when I'm, what I mean by large is mandatory reporting in 2024-2025. So that depends on your year end, 31 December 2024, or if you've got a 30 June year, 30 June 2025, the large entities, that group one entities, um, will have to do mandatory sustainability reporting, specifically IFRS S2. So what does large mean? What does group one mean? If you meet two of the following three thresholds, you would be large, you'll be in group one. So it's either more than 500 employees, gross assets, consolidated gross assets, more of a billion dollars, uh, consolidated revenue, more than 500 million. So so two of those three, uh, you'll do mandatory reporting 24-25. Then the second group will be two years later, so 26-27, 31 December 26, 30 June 27, and we basically bring it down to Again, two of the three, more than 250 employees, more than 500 million assets, more than uh, 200 million um, or 250 million revenue. Um, and then the third group, 27, 28, would be everybody currently preparing and lodging um, audited financial statements with ASIC. However, and I should say this, a lot of people try and look for a way out of this mandatory sustainability reporting. So if you listen to these size thresholds and you think, oh, it's not me, there's a big surprise. There's a huge surprise uh, because all of this is flowing through the supply chain. I've experienced this. So recently I was on a call with one of our franchisees pitching uh, a building under development to a large tenant. Private client didn't think they were going to have any requirements whatsoever to report moving forward. Um, in the pre or the prep discussions, we said to them, well, if you're after the big end of town or government, then you are going to have to be prepared to provide the information for them to report. And there was a jaw-dropping moment in recognition of, of what they're going to have to do. So capacity is an issue for, for a lot of our clients. 
what would you say around how they get started? What guidance would you give them? I think the most important thing is for organizations to sit back and say, where do I fit into the whole economic system? So who are my investors and what pressures are there on them around sustainability and sustainability reporting? Who are my clients? Who are my customers? What pressures are there on them? What information would they ask me? So you have to understand your place within the broader economic world around you. Because if any of those stakeholders in your ecosystem will have to do sustainability reporting, but not just that, commit to a target, commit to reducing their emissions, they will come to you and ask for information. Yeah, the leasing market seeing a lot of this happen. So in a leasing market, if you've got a large occupier, uh, in leasing discussion or renewal discussion, you could well be caught up into um, them seeking a commitment baked into the lease. And we certainly saw that with a client in a regional market who were talking to a, a tenant to stay put. And that tenant required them to have those net zero commitments by a certain date baked into the lease. And I understand also that that tenant has said, or, or the agreement was, that the lease would be broken if the landlord didn't make it. Now, that was the first of those we'd seen. But I understand that to be um, more and more the behavior of, of tenants with their own commitments. It's also differentiating the leasing market. If you can differentiate your product at point of sale or lease to those markets, then you're going to get um, better market attention. And I understand that. I absolutely understand that. And the reason is, and I think carbon reduction is a fantastic example of this in practice, because if an organization calculates, measures, reports their carbon footprint, they have to split it down between scope one, scope two, and scope three. And scope one would be those emissions under their control um, that happen at the properties they own, but also the properties they lease. So you've got control. Scope two is your purchased electricity. So are you buying renewables or you know, what kind of electricity do you buy? How dirty is it or not? And how much do you use? So how efficient is your building? So those two, scope one and two, most entities, I would say, have some control over. Then you get to scope three. This is the big one. It's a big one. It's the indirect one. You have no control because this is all the emissions that arrives at your gate because you buy goods and you buy services and embedded in those goods and services are emissions already. And then we also know that between 80 and 90% of the carbon footprint of entities are sitting in scope three and it's out of your control. So how can the big end of town or any entity commit to reduce their carbon footprint if they don't reach into all their suppliers and say, what is your carbon footprint before it arrives at our gate? How are you going to reduce your carbon footprint? What are your targets? And I think what will happen, and it will have to happen, unless suppliers behave in a certain way, entities will be forced to look for alternative suppliers with a lower carbon footprint. I think that's absolutely real. Um, we're starting to see those behaviours, certainly Take the big supermarket chains, for example. They've got a huge amount of buying power. I'm sure that's happening in their supply chains. For us in property um, and in direct property trying to assist our clients, let's make the link there between 
all that data and how people assemble it. And I've heard you say recently that you've worked with a client using spreadsheets on this, and that was an absolute joy, Aletta. Oh, it was a joy. So I'm an accountant, and accountants are supposed to love Excel spreadsheets. But personally, I hate Excel spreadsheets because I don't think it's the it's efficient. It is subject to corruption, data corruption, and there's always somebody that can can come in and override it. And if you've got too many formulas, etc., I don't like Excel. Right? I, I don't think it's the best way especially in this space where we're dealing with a volume of data. And, and, and the big problem with data here is we're not just looking at financial data. We are looking uh, about electricity usage. Uh, we're bringing in data from a lot of different places. It's not already in our finance system. We have to go and find electricity invoices. We have to go and find fugitive emissions, those leakages from air conditioning units. That's not in a financial system. No. So we had the conversation on a global call the other night because ourselves, you know, Knight Frank are reporting um, globally on TCFD standards. Reporting used to be storytelling, as you mentioned, non-mandatory reporting, storytelling of what great things people were doing in ESG. It really has moved out of the realm of ESG and deeply into financial reporting, although everybody needs to be at, at at the table providing information, including ourselves. There's been a super shift on that. So it changes who's reporting, but it also changes the ma- the manner in which we report. So two things I want to touch there. What are you seeing in terms of how companies are shifting that? And um, I then want to get on to data. Let's park that for a second. I think the biggest shift we've seen since December 2022, when the switch was flipped, was when Australian government in that first consultation paper said that we're going to bring in mandatory sustainability reporting in the annual report together with audited financial statements and there will be assurance in future. The first mention of that happening, the switch was flicked because suddenly CFOs who I would say prepare and own and are passionate about information that go into financial reports and annual reports, they said, okay, now I have to understand sustainability reporting. I have to understand this information going into my report. I will have to deal with auditors when they um, provide some form of assurance over this information. More importantly, there's a connectivity between sustainability information and the numbers in the financial statement. So now we're talking money, Janine. We're now talking, are my assets still at the correct value? Should assets be impaired? Should we shorten useful life? Should of assets, should we book additional liabilities? So as soon as sustainability information has an impact on those numbers in the financial statements, and if it's in the annual report, which is within the spotlight of investors, Scrutiny is increased. CFOs, boards, chair of audit and risk committee, CEOs, they're sitting up and they want to know more. It's very important. That's what's happened. Yeah, I can see the very clear boundaries between each of these stakeholders from the previous version of how we achieve this to the transformational shift required for all the stakeholders to get together is going to be a massive change for some organizations. It, it's one they need to start the journey on now, don't they? So I think sustainability professionals, sustainability managers, 
chief sustainability officers have been doing amazing work for a long time, for many, many years. Um, and, and all of that have been showcased often in that separate voluntary sustainability report. Sure. But it's now time for that amazing work and that information to move to the annual report. So we need finance professionals, CFOs and their teams to cooperate and work with sustainability professionals in order to bring this information together. In an ecosystem. In an ecosystem. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Well, the, you know, the challenge is laid bare. The UN recently described data as the fuel that powers progress across all the SDGs, which are sustainability, sustainable development goals, um, and the requirement for stronger data systems being essential to good policy. What are your recommendations around this, knowing how you love spreadsheets? <laughs> I think it's really important. I mean, for all organisations, data and data governance and protection of data, that's really important. I think what we have here is there's a lot of data that sits outside the traditional financial system and financial um, um, policies and procedures that an organization has in place. So therefore the risk is if I ask you to provide invoices to indicate all your electricity usage for the year and an entity comes back with stacks and stacks of invoices electronically, electronically usually, my first question would be how do I know I've got everything, you know, completeness of that information? And, and you know, how did you assess completeness of that information? So I think for us important is to try and do some comparison, shall I say, reconciliation between financial information generated by a trusted financial system with all this other information that are now being provided. So that completeness reconciliation is very important. Great. And the whole volume of, of information is, is something that we've been tackling ourselves and we're delighted recently to launch an ESG data management and reporting platform called PRISM, partnering with Trellis Technology. So we are finding the interest and the uptake in that particular solution extraordinary because it overcomes uh, the range of spreadsheets you require and it also puts a, a centralised repository for all those bills. Um, and in discussion with you recently, it's also likely to bring the costs down of otherwise astronomical, astronomical there we go, yeah. um, audit costs as well. I agree, because if you can have a system that captured it all and also if that system has a way to say this is what we've captured, this is how it links to your financial information, I mean, that's magic. Audit ready. Audit ready, yeah. that's the key word. Yeah. Okay, in closing, Alessa, what's your top tip for our real estate investors on how to start this journey? Janine, just one tip, get started. Get started now. Fabulous. Deletta, thank you so much for joining for a great discussion. I love the energy and the expertise you bring to a reasonably dry subject. Thank you. And thanks to the audience. Before you go, subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out on the next episode of The Property Perspective, when we'll be back to share our take on more key trends and topics shaping Australia's property market. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or visit our website at nightfrank.com.au for more information.
thanks for tuning in. It may be the end of the show, but we're always your partners in property. 